Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My goal here uh, this evening is to really f- do t- two, uh, three things. Oops. It's going to do three things. So we're going to be talking about science. I'm going to try to give you an update on CRISPR, basically some of the coolest stuff that has happened in the last year has really demonstrated the utility of CRISPR for uh, medical interventions and therapeutics. And I want to illustrate some of that for you. And then we're gonna be talking about some distinctions. So trying to handle the ethical questions that are raised by um, CRISPR. And then when we talk about ethics, I'm going to contrast two different approaches to ethics, an ethics of dignity versus an ethics of autonomy. And uh, those are the two predominant approaches to ethics in uh, the West today. Okay, so it's an ethics of dignity and ethics of of autonomy. And I want to just simply talk about what dignity implies and why there is such a dispute between, say, faith-based ethics, which are usually grounded in an ethics of dignity, and more secular accounts, which promote autonomy. And so the question is, how do we... How do you even understand and appreciate the similarities and the differences between the two? And how do you resolve the apparent tensions between the two? And then we'll talk very specifically about applying, in this case, an ethics of dignity to the questions raised by CRISPR. And we're dealing here with not only just genetic engineering uh, for therapy, but also the genetic design of children. So what sort of ethical concerns should should are raised by those? So we're gonna begin with science. And so I'm gonna just assume nothing here. I'm not quite sure what your biological background is. So I'm just gonna start by just talking about the genome. So the genome, as some of you are probably aware, is the genetic information that encodes uh, basically the blueprint for a particular organism. And so here we have the human being, and there's no, so here's the human being. Um, And what you can see here, of course, is that the genome, this is the chromosomes that most people, most non-biologists are familiar with. There are 46, 23 from mom and 23 from dad. But you also have a very small piece, a mitochondrial genome that's inherited primarily through, well, only through your mother. And so it's really interesting. The Nobel Prize for Medicine this year was given a couple of days ago to Zavante Pabo for looking at how we can use genomics to understand our history. And one of the earliest discoveries in paleogenomics was the discovery that all human beings alive today are descended from a single female, but she was not the only female living at that time, okay? It's really important to understand that. And the same thing can be done with the Y chromosome, and it turns out every single male on the planet is descended from a single male, but again, he was not the only male living at that time. And, and, and to parse that out would take an entire lecture. But, but, but the idea here, the idea here is that you have this information and uh, you can take the standard chromosome and you can stretch it out. And of course, what you end up is the classic double helix. And um, I, I don't know if you know that the typical genetic information for your body can be, is, uh, can be stretched out to a basically a seven foot long DNA strand. And the largest cell in the human body, which is the human egg, is the period at the end of a new Times New Roman 12 font. And one of the big, one of the challenges for the coming century, so we're living in the, in the century of biology. So the, the 19th century was a century of chemistry. And then the 20th century was a century for physics. And we're currently living in the century of biology. And one of the big challenges in biology is how do you take a seven foot long strand of spaghetti, put it into a spaghetti bowl in a way that you can identify every small little piece of that piece of spaghetti. And what, what we're beginning to understand is that that seven foot long DNA strand is organized in incredible three dimensional topographically intricate ways. It's uh, And so you have this multiple layers of structure, and we're only beginning to understand 
how the cell actually accesses that information um, in order to identify the particular gene that needs to be turned on at a particular moment in time. So this is a typical DNA sequence. This is actually the sequence for the gene that my students and I have been working with for 10 years. It's the yeast gene BAX inhibitor, BXI1. The only thing I want you to take back is that for those of you who are not biologists, DNA is an alternating sequence of four different molecules, GATC. And the human genome is made up of three billion of these bases. So the bases are these molecular, these little molecular units that are simply uh, strung together uh, on a long piece of string, three billion of these. Now, um, so in terms of CRISPR, the reason why it's so cool is because CRISPR, if you imagine the 46 chromosomes that you have in your body as an encyclopedia, you've got 46 different volumes of this incredible encyclopedia. With CRISPR, what we can do now is we can pull out volume 23, open it up to page 494, uh, go down eight lines on the first column, three letters over, and change that single G to an A. It's that, it's that precise, that's what we can do. And CRISPR is made up of two parts. Basically there's a part, so there's the, it's called the gRNA, that's the targeting part. That's the part that sends the scissors to a particular point in your genome. And then the Cas9 are the pair of scissors. So it's very simple. What CRISPR does is it sends a pair of scissors to a very specific place and the scissors cut. But what's interesting is what happens after that cut. So um, basically this is a three-dimensional representation of that. So the green is the, the targeting sequence. It's that, it's that RNA that sends the, the, the pair of scissors to a particular location on your genome. And then the, the little purple blue here, that's your DNA. And the yellow, that's the CAS, CRISPR-CAS. The CAS, those are the pair of scissors. And what actually happens is that the guide RNA basically makes a single double-stranded cut. So DNA is a double helix. It's a ladder that's twisted you make a cut. Now, double-stranded cuts are incredibly dangerous in a living cell because they generate mutations. And in fact, your body has evolved numerous mechanisms to protect itself from these double-stranded cuts. And so as soon as, soon as that double-stranded cut, cut happens in your cells, your cells turn on a repair mechanism in order to repair it. So two things can happen. On the left side, what happens is the cell simply glues the double strand back. It just takes the double strand, it trims the ends, and it glues them back. Now what happens here is that some of the letters get destroyed, and so the information is messed up, and so the gene is silenced, the gene is disrupted. That gene is now uh, silent in your body, doesn't work. But the more interesting thing on the right is what you do is you introduce into the cell new information at that precise site, and the cell's inherent repair mechanisms will copy the information that you introduced. And basically what will happen, in repairing this double strand break, it introduces the new information, and you have therefore edited that genome. That's what, this is, this, that's what uh, CRISPR-Cas is able to do. And so CRISPR-Cas is actually relatively recent. Uh, the first hints of it were, indicated in 1987. There were like special patterns that you saw in DNA, but it's only really in the last 10 years that we were able to take this bacterial defense mechanism because this is, so it turns out in nature, CRISPR-Cas is used by bacteria to defend themselves against viruses. So you can think of it that way. And, they're, and they're, they get vaccinated as well uh, in a way that uh, I won't have a chance to get into. But um, in 2020, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry was given to two of the pioneers, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna at UC Berkeley for the discovery, not of the, of the machine itself, but the discovery that showed that this machine could be used to edit genes. So um, what's happened since in the last couple of years? So first of all, uh, a lot of biologists have gone into trying to show that the potential for gene therapy is in fact uh, real. So here you have a mouse model for 
human hereditary tyrosinemia. Uh, it's a disease caused by, an, uh, by a broken liver. And what happens here is you can take that CRISPR machine, introduce it into the mouse. The mouse, the CRISPR goes to the liver of the mouse. It fixes some of the cells of that liver of the mouse. And now that mouse is able to do what it couldn't do. You're able to cure human hereditary tyrosinemia. So this is, this is one of the earliest demonstrations that uh, CRISPR could be used in vivo. That means in a living animal. Now, uh, one of the things that is actually quite fascinating, you may or may not have heard about it, is this notion of gene drives. And um, so let me tell you what's going on here. So uh, imagine a mosquito. So Anopheles uh, aegypti is the mosquito that is, that is responsible for malaria, for Zika, for a whole bunch of different diseases. And so there is, there is a proposal out there to eradicate uh, this particular species of mosquito. Now, there are 3,000 different species of mosquito, so we're not getting rid of all mosquitoes, we're getting rid of one mosquito. And the idea here is if we get rid of one mosquito, then we will get rid of the vector. Vector is the animal uh, that is able to transmit uh, the disease, the vector for a whole bunch of human diseases. And so this is the idea, is that we would introduce into a population of mosquitoes a gene that makes them sterile or a gene that kills them off. And you would use a gene drive to push this gene into the population. So let me illustrate what that means. So on the left-hand side, what you have is normal inheritance. So if you've got uh, a Cas9 gene, so this is a, a CRISPR-Cas9 gene, and it's carried on one of the two chromosomes. Remember, uh, most organisms on this planet are, have two sets of chromosomes, one from mom and one from dad. And so what happens if you have normal inheritance, so you've got dad is red, mom is blue, and then half of the kids get red. That's just the way it works. That's Mendelian genetics. But what we, what uh, the idea about gene drive is that the CRISPR-Cas9 is set up. So when, once it enters an animal, it copies itself onto the other copy of the genome. So what happens now is that uh, you have mommy, you have the mom chromosome, dad chromosome, you introduce this poison into the mom chromosome and it will self-copy itself onto the dad chromosome. And now all the kids get it. And every time the kids get it, it copies itself to the other chromosome. And eventually over time, every single mosquito in that population after several generations is carrying this gene. And if this gene is a poison, it basically knocks off this entire population. So um, this is, um, it's actually been shown that it's to be done. Uh, so in November, 2018, they were able to do this with an Anopheles gambiae mosquito population. They were able to show the gene drives actually work. You can actually go in there and knock out population of the mosquitoes. And now uh, in February, 2019, just before COVID, they were able to show it can be done with mice. So the idea is let's get rid of all the mice in the subways of New York. We just gene drive that whole thing in there. We, we introduce a poison gene, and then we just let a whole bunch of male mice go crazy on the subways. And over time, what will happen is that this gene will be introduced into the population and all the rodents will be killed off. There are a lot of ethical questions <laughs> raised by this technology, okay? And um, uh, we, you can start thinking about what would it be like to knock out a species. Now we've already done that. So smallpox is a species of virus that's been eradicated. No one has any problems that we eradicated a, a species of, of small a virus, okay? And in fact, people would be really, really happy if we could do that with SARS-CoV-2 or monkeypox. Get rid of it completely. So no one's really upset that we've lost one virus. People are like, there's so many other different viruses. Why worry about this one? So now the, the question is, should, we, should that kind of logic be applied to a population of mosquitoes? So you've got one species in 3,000. We just get rid of one. We got 2,999 left. There's still enough to be bitten during the summer. Is that a good? Is that something we should do? Those are the kind of questions that we're, 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 we're grappling with right now. Now, of course, though, the ethics of CRISPR is, is, is best focused in on the human person. And so there are two different approaches that you can use at this time to CRISPR a patient. 
So on the top, you have what's called in vivo uh, gene therapy. This is where you take the CRISPR machine and you introduce it into the patient's body. It enters the body. And once it enters the body, you target that CRISPR machine to whatever to organ or, or tissue you want it to go to. It goes there, it does its little magic. It does some genetic engineering and whatever is ha whatever you want to happen in terms of ther therapy should have happened. The bottom is ex vivo. What you do there is you take the stem cells out of the patient and then you tinker with those stem cells in your lab. You do quality control to make sure those stem cells have in fact been genetically altered in the way that you want them to be genetically altered and you put them back into the patient in, the, in order to quote, cure a particular disease. So there's two different approaches. Um, the ex vivo uh, started first. So what you have here is hemoglobin. And for those of you who remember from high school, the standard hemoglobin uh, mutation is a mutation, it's a single letter. So it changes, so it should be A, but in patients with hemoglobin, you um, with sickle cell disease, the hemoglobin has a T and that single change will generate abnormal shaped red blood cells. And so the idea here is you take the stem cells from the patient, you genetically engineer them with CRISPR, you correct the defect and you return that to the patient and the patient basically is cured. I mean, that's what it's supposed to happen in principle. So in May, 2019, um, this paper was published in Nature Medicine that indicated that we could in fact cr CRISPR uh, stem cells. And then just a couple of months ago, uh, we had the results of a clinical trial, which showed that in fact, with two baby, two kids, um, the CRISPR editing their, uh, approach was able to ameliorate symptoms in living patients. So this was just published two months ago. So this is kind of like the first uh, in vivo principle that it's working in people. Now um, you can also do in vivo editing. And so this is LCA10. This is Liber congenital amaurosis, LCA. And this is a uh, congenitally inherited blindness. And so um, what happens here is that the gene uh, that encodes one of the essential molecules in your retina, there's a genetic defect in it. And because there's a genetic defect in it, it's a splicing error for those who are biologists there's a splicing error, what actually happens is the cells in the retina begin to die. And so you have little girls like Mora here, uh, she was diagnosed when she was five, and she's going to be blind basically by 20. And so the idea is that can we correct this mutation uh, by simply injecting the CRISPR machine directly into your eye? The eye is an amazing target for Ori because it's just so easy. You can just stick a needle in there. Now, it's a little bit freaky, right? But the idea is that you stick the needle in there, you, you, you inject the CRISPR machine in some delivery system, and you see whether it works. And this is Editas Medicine down in Cambridge. And um, the data just came out uh, in March 2021, so last year. Basically what happens, there was just a few individuals, and it turned out that the, it helped some, but not all. And the reason for this is they were, they, they were injecting different concentrations of the uh, CRISPR machine and it had to be the highest concentration to get any effect. The idea here is that, um, now when we say a blind woman see, it's not like she was sitting there, you know, 2020, but one of the things I've learned because I, I visited Editas and just talked to them, uh, for someone who's going blind, just seeing color and just seeing shapes is a significant improvement in quality of life because they can now avoid. So, so the, one of the tests here is that you basically take the patient and you put them along a, um, they just have to avoid different obstacles. Uh, you, you, there's a hallway in the, in the lab and you basically, they, you, you see whether or not they can avoid obstacles. And um, for someone who is blind, the biggest challenge is simply getting from point A to point B without running into something. And if you are able to see shapes, that's a significant quality of life, improvement in quality of life, because now you can actually avoid anything. And so uh, this blind woman, uh, it, she was able to recover enough sight so she was able to manage this obstacle course in a way she could not before uh, using the therapy. And so she's incredibly grateful for that because she went from black to like grays and whites and you know she was able to see something. 
Um, we also have, this is the, uh, from Italia Therapeutics. Uh, this is uh, hereditary angioedema. This is basically random inflammation all over your body because of complement disorder. So complement is uh, the machinery involved that, 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 that's responsible for clotting in your, in your blood. And there's a mutation in a gene, KLKD1 from Calicrane. You knock that off and basically levels of toxic molecule drop. And so a one single injection of CRISPR in a bunch of these patients was able to correct this defect. And in fact, it's really striking when you read the news reports, uh, these patients had been on drugs for all of their life. And after a single injection, the liver was able to recover enough uh, of normal function or actually a function that were lacking KLKD1 that they were able to go drug free, which is significant. Again, in terms of quality of life, it's a significant improvement. Um, this is gets reported three weeks ago. So this is basically where we are right now. The idea, of course, is that it's going to take time to figure it out. Now, we've done, so in August 2017, they were able to edit the genomes of human embryos. This is in Shukrat Metalopov's lab uh, in Oregon. Uh, very controversial. No one's quite, if you look at the, the, paper, the papers since then, no one's quite sure if what he said he did, he did. Uh, and if, he did, if it happened, it happened the way he thought it happened. I'm just gonna uh, uh, say that. And of course, uh, there was a discussion earlier. Um, so CRISPR was used uh, allegedly to edit the genomes of two girls, uh, two human girls. This is Hei Jankui, who reported this in 2018 at the Human Genome Editing Meeting in Hong Kong. Um, since then, he's been in prison by the government of China. It's not quite clear what's going on. It's not even quite clear what laws he broke uh, because at the time he reported this, everyone was for this project until there was a sustained pushback from the world and then the Chinese government kind of intervened. He disappeared for a while and then he ended up in prison. So um, the reason why uh, it's particularly troubling that these experiments were done is that we have clear data that uh, CRISPR editing at this time is unsafe in human embryos uh, because it causes enormous chromosomal havoc. We're not quite sure why that's the case, but it seems to be that way. Um, you know, you can change this and get it right, but the danger is that you've changed something else. Uh, you've got three billion other letters to, to mess around, and that's the problem. You know, you cure yourself, you're now, so, so Hei Jiang Kui, convinced the parents of these two girls, and this is not a picture of the two girls, he, he convinced uh, the parents of the two girls to get them CRISPR'd because the father had chronic HIV infection, and he said he could prevent the girls from, in, from getting HIV by mutating the gene that is responsible for encoding the receptor for HIV. So the idea is that you remove the receptor, the HIV goes in, it can't find anything to grab onto, so the girls the girls become immune. Um, but you do that, but now you give them cancer, right? So that's the, that's the trade-off. We're not quite sure where that's going right now. And just to give you a sense of where this entire field is going, so this is CRISPR prime editing, first described in October 2019. Just, you know, COVID was already silently growing off there in China. Um, what happens here is you don't have a double cut, you have a single cut to DNA. And um, I told you that double cuts are really dangerous for the cell because they're mutagenic. They change, they, 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 they trigger cancer in many ways. Um, so if you are able to get this, a single, a single um, cut, it actually makes things a lot safer. And so what's happening now is CRISPR prime editing is being developed as an alternative to the classic CRISPR in the hopes that we, we would be able to do the gene editing that I've described to you uh, while reducing background uh, noise. So a couple of distinctions that we need just to highlight before I jump into the ethics. So first of all, ex vivo and in vivo, we talked about that. So in vivo is you take the CRISPR machine, you introduce it into the patient. Ex vivo, you take the cells out of the patient, you engineer them outside the patient, and you reintroduce the genetically engineered cells back into that patient. That's the first distinction. The second is somatic and germline. So here, the idea is that um, with uh, 
with somatic cell therapy, I'm gonna change you. I'm changing a, what's called a present person, while for germline editing, we're going to be dealing with future persons. I'm gonna change your kids. And, and the, the ethics raised between those two is very different, uh, especially if you think about consent. So now we have to talk about this final distinction with this therapy or enhancement. A lot of people will fall on this distinction and will say, therapy is okay, but enhancement is not. That's what I hear all the time. The question now is whether or not this distinction is actually a robust one, right? A lot of people will say, uh, therapy, it returns the patient to the species norm. This is good. It moves the patient beyond the species norm. Many believe this is out of bounds. This is evil. Make someone tall, make someone more beautiful, whatever it is. The idea here is, or increase sight, uh, give them extrasensory powers, whatever it is, this would not be right. So that's the idea, outside enhancement versus therapy. But the, the question actually is, is this a robust one? Uh, is this something that we actually hold on to right now? And I've argued that that there are we've already enhanced people. There are actually millions of people running around the world that are enhanced, and we have no problems with that. Um, and it has to do with LDL levels. So LDL levels, um, that's the bad, um, uh, the cholesterol. And so you've got to lower the levels of bad cholesterol. Okay. So the question now is. Where do you send it? Where do you get it down to? So the average LDL level for U.S. adults is 119 milligrams per deciliter, and the normal range is 90 to 30, just on average. Now, what's interesting is that if you go to a cardiologist today, um, they're going to just tell you that we want the LD level, LDL levels as low as possible. And you ask how low they go, as low as possible. Now, what's interesting is you go to hunter-gatherer tribes, the average is 17 milligrams per deciliter. Now, non-human primates, you know, chimps, bonobos, all of that, 30 to 50. And there's actually a healthy human patient that we've discovered. He has a mutation in the PCSK9 mutation in PSC, PCSK9 gene. And because of this mutation, he's down to 15 milligrams per deciliter. And there's nothing, we don't, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with this guy. So now you go into the doc and the doc says, let's get it down. And you're like, well, how far down? Well, it's again, um, what's interesting is that if you believe in the therapy enhancement distinction, you can't go below 70. Because if you go below 70, you're enhancing that human being. But it turns out we've enhanced millions of adults over the last 20 years with statins. There are a lot of, and probably some of your parents are walking around enhanced because their LDL levels are pharmacologically de depressed because statins have been used to keep them down. And so, and there's a lot of studies that show the lower you go, the better it is. And so cardiologists just get it down, right? So um, it's already standard practice that we've enhanced human beings. Some of your parents are enhanced mutants. Um, they have lower LDL levels because we know that this protects human health. So those who want to advocate this therapy and enhancement distinction, they would have to go against, they would have to say basically that the current practice of prescribing statins is, is immoral. Uh, no one wants to say that, right? So we already know we have an example in place to knock out that distinction because there are therapeutic enhancements that do promote the, the human good of health. And so um, what I have proposed actually in the work that I've done as an ethicist is that the distinction should not be therapy and enhancement, but therapeutic versus non-therapeutic. Um, this is, we could go into big debates about this. There's also, uh, it's hard to quite get the, the black and white in there, but for most cases you can distinguish the two. So now let's talk about ethics. Uh, the key concept, I've, as I've talked about, is there are two basic approaches to doing ethics in the West today, an ethics of dignity and an ethics of autonomy. Uh, most people are familiar with the ethics of autonomy, so I'm going to present the ethics of dignity, especially because uh, from the Catholic moral, moral tradition, we focus primarily on dignity rather than autonomy. So first of all, what is dignity? You know, we talk about people, people are, there's human dignity. What is it exactly? It's basically the answer to this question, how much are you worth? 
So if I asked you, how much are you worth? What would you say? What would you say? What would Dartmouth tell you you are worth? Okay, if I asked your mother, if I asked your mother, how much is your kid worth? What would your mother say? What? She'd slap me? <laughs> slap you. Which one? What would she say? Uh, quite expensive. Quite. No, just quite. So what's interesting, right, is I have to ask this question, right? So if I ask how much is an iPhone 7, I haven't updated this in years. Um, how much is an iPhone 7, and my students would say 32G, Father. You got to specify memory. Okay, fine. iPhone 7, 32G worth. How much is it worth? What is striking is there are two numbers associated with that. There is what's called the intrinsic value. It's called the teardown cost. So if, you're if you, you work with Samsung, you can buy an iPhone and you break that phone down and you can calculate approximately how much it would cost for all to purchase all the parts and then to put the parts together. This is called the teardown cost. And then you have the suggested retail price. You can see that the price point is huge. I mean, uh, Apple is able to have such significant margins. Um, and you have two values, the extrinsic value and the intrinsic value. This value never changes. As long as you have that phone, the minute the phone comes together, that's the value of that phone. And it's just, that's the phone. That's, a, that's how much it's worth until you break it apart. Now, you don't even have to turn it on. That's the value of the phone. The extrinsic value, the suggested retail price, this will depend. Is it Prime Day? Is it Black Friday? You see what I mean? This price goes up and down. It depends on social or market forces, social expectations. If this iPhone belonged to, I don't know, Britney Spears, the price would go up. Well, for some people. So, so what happens is that you have an intrinsic and extrinsic value. Now, an ethics of dignity and most, most faith-based traditions will claim that persons, human persons, have two values. And this is it. So the intrinsic value is the inherent worth. You are priceless. This is your mother's price tag for you. It's not just very high. It's priceless. Now remember, it's priceless because it's incredibly unique. And you can't destroy priceless things. There's a, there's, because it's so priceless and so irreplaceable, there's an, and like if I had a, you know, the Mona Lisa, which is priceless, irreplaceable. If I destroyed it, you would be, there would be a moral pushback against that. Now, extrinsic dignity is the social worth of the human person. You have a salary, a net worth, a celebrity, high office. Now, this is really important for bioethics because, for example, um, what's your name? Okay, if Jack, let's say Jack, Jack is admitted to the hospital here. What's the name of the hospital here? The THFC, Hitchcock. Uh, Hitchcock. And he needs a new heart. And it just happens that the president of the United States needs a new heart too, and they match. Who gets the heart? What, what's, the, what's this current, how do we decide? How do we decide today? Does Jack get it? Or does the president of the United States get it? What is the rule right now? What is it? Okay, so now notice, now Jack, um, I'm assuming your extrinsic, extrinsic dignity is not quite high right now, okay? So, um, so in terms of like celebrity, high office, salary, net worth, right? Jack's, now to his parents, he's got way a lot of, but for society, Jack's extrinsic dignity is kind of on the low side right now, okay? <laughs> now, the President of the United States, on the other hand, has high extrinsic dignity. The question is, do we base bioethical concerns on extra on extrinsic dignity? Do we say that automatically the President of the United States must receive the heart over Jack? What is the standard practice? Does anyone know? So where, who, do, who gets it first? So actually today, because we believe that everyone is radically equal, okay? So we believe that's radically equal. So Jack and uh, Joe Biden are equals. 
Now, the only thing that we, now you'll say, why are they equal? If you base it on an extrinsic account of dignity, it's really hard to argue that they're both equal. And yet we assume that every human being alive is equal. Now it's equal because at the underlying account of that is an intrinsic dignity. If we're all priceless, we're all equal. You understand? Which is why today in modern bioethical practice, the assumption is that the sickest of the two gets it first. We don't care whether or not he's the president of the United States or a student at Dartmouth. We don't care. We, we say they're both of equal value. What we have to do is we have to figure out who's the sickest and we give that heart to the sickest. That's, the why, that's why you go up and down on the organ transplant list. So the assumption there is we're all equal and the basis for the inequality is an intrinsic account of dignity. Because if you only have extrinsic dignity, then everyone, no, there's nothing that will make us all equal. And in fact, you know, I grew up in Thailand and I've had numerous arguments there because the, so socially and culturally, the Thai people do not believe that men and women are equal. And the question is, what is the ground for the claim that men and women are equal? You know, I've, I had an ex-girlfriend a long time ago. Um, <laughs> you know, she would say, like, we're not equal. Because in everything you can, she, you know, historically, it's the gun that changed everything. Because once there was a gun, a woman could actually shoot and kill a male. But prior to the gun, the, the invention of the gun, females were at a distinct disadvantage in terms of survival with the male. So, the, so, so, and she would say things like that. She would just say, women and men are not equal. And trying to argue that is really hard because the assumption is there's an intrinsic dignity. It's the only basis for equality. Think about it. Because if you say it's IQ, if you say it's ability to think, well, there are people who can think better than you and you can think better than others. So if the, and think about the phone, right? Uh, there is not an intrinsic equality amongst phones. An iPhone and a flip phone are not worth the same price because they can do different things. They, one is a, quote, better phone than the other. And so if everything is just extrinsic dignity, there are humans that can do human things better than other humans. And so we would not be equal. I want you to keep that in mind. So notice the intrinsic dignity is the worth of the human being simply because he or she is human. This phone costs this much because it's that phone. And as soon as you put it together, it's worth that much. And it's worth that much until it falls apart. Now, it is not earned or bestowed. It is acknowledged and recognized. And you notice it's absolute. It cannot increase or decrease. The, the teardown cost of the phone is $217 for that i7, iPhone 7, no matter what happens. It's intrinsic. And there's no such thing as partial intrinsic dignity. Either the phone is a phone or it's not a phone. Either you're a human being or you're not. This is the intrinsic account. Now, from a theological perspective, so now we're talking about how does one justify this? Not surprisingly, this account of intrinsic dignity arises in Christian cultures, in Christian societies, because theologically it was based on this theological claim that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. And because God is infinite value, human beings have infinite value. That was the claim, that's a theological claim. In a post-Christian secular culture, this is not an accessible justification for intrinsic dignity. And so now you will notice we struggle to justify intrinsic dignity. Because if dignity is only extrinsic, then you can lose it or gain it, which is why you can justify euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, because the patient can lose his dignity when he's, when he's incontinent, when he is basically uh, mentally uh, incapacitated, he has lost his social value, he's lost his extrinsic dignity, he's lost his dignity. You've heard this, losing dignity. It's an extrinsic account. And the reason why we have this is because our society in a post-Christian way is unable to justify intrinsic dignity. And, and this is the challenge we have. This is why my ex-girlfriend, she's now finding it difficult to understand why she's equal to males. Now, from a philosophical perspective, so 
in a philosophical perspective, you're dealing here with no appeals to God, no appeals to the Bible or Revelation. There is actually, in the classical 2,000-year tradition of Western philosophy, a non-religious justification for intrinsic dignity, and it was this. The human being, unlike all other creatures, animals, had a spiritual dimension to him or to her. And since spirit is worth a lot more than matter, there was a priceless tag associated with the human person in a way that you could not attribute to animals. Now, this goes, this goes all the way back to Plato and to Aristotle and Socrates. So this is pre-Christian. But again, we, we live in not only a post-Christian world, we live in a post, well, in a materialistic world. Everything is atoms in a void. So there's no spirit. So all of a sudden, there's no access to justify intrinsic dignity in Western society at all. Which is why like, I'm involved in debates with the Chinese, and the Chinese are saying, well, the notions of liberty, the notions of equality and freedom, those are Western values. They're not Chinese. Why should we be, why should, when you, why should, how can the United Nations justify its appeal to universal human rights when those human rights are inherently based on this claim that we're all equal? And the Chinese say, we're not equal. There's nothing to justify the equality. And this is why we're struggling in the West because we cannot justify intrinsic dignity. Now, now what's interesting is that I'm gonna focus now on this uh, question right here, where is that? So when I have to, I am a Christian bioethicist, I'm a Catholic bioethicist, I have lots of friends who are secular. And when they say, what's different about the way we do bioethics? I say, it's about this intrinsic dignity bit. So what will happen now is if you have, this is Ruth Macklin, she will say dignity is a useless concept. She will say, uh, it means no more than respect for persons or their autonomy, which is why I'm juxtaposing an ethics of dignity with an ethics of autonomy. Now notice, in an ethics of autonomy, which is what is, is dominant in our culture today, anything is right as long as you get to do it without harming anyone else. Sound familiar? That's an ethics of autonomy. Now the question actually is, why should we respect your autonomy? See, this is where it gets a little tricky. So uh, Steven Pinker over at Harvard says, the stupidity of dignity. Dignity is something we need to get rid of. Everything else is autonomy. Now, the problem is that uh, the claim here is that human dignity means no more than respect for personal autonomy. And the Chinese will say this, why should I respect your autonomy? In a Confucian culture, which is communitarian at heart, why should we bother? Why, why is autonomy something that is valuable? Because remember, what we're saying in the West is that autonomy is incredibly valuable and it is the highest of all values and therefore needs to be respected. And any actions that diminish autonomy are ethically ruled out of balance, correct? That's what we say. And the Chinese will say, why? Now, I'm gonna explain this. So autonomy, the understanding is, well, autonomy is because I can think and I can choose. Do you understand? And because I can think and I can choose. This is Kant. For those of you who've taken philosophy, this standard justification is, um, I can think and I, and those are really cool things. And because they're really cool things, we have to value those things and we have to protect those things. But as a biologist, I go, that doesn't make any sense at all. Because take a look at this. Intellect and will are evolutionary adaptations, and they're not intrinsically more valuable than other adaptations. Think about it this way, okay? I'm just taking this picture. If tomorrow you knew you were gonna wake up in the middle of the polar tundra, would you choose to be a naked human being with intellect and will, or would you choose to be a polar bear? I bet most of you, like, I will become a polar bear. And the reason is because being a polar bear is more worthwhile than being a human being in the Arctic tundra. Now, if you were in the middle of Hanover, New Hampshire, you wouldn't want to be a polar bear because you'd be a dead polar bear. <laughs> but, but, but if you, so you notice there is a relativization from an evolutionary perspective, intellect and will. There is no reason 
for us to value autonomy. It's simply affirmed. There is no more justification. But here's the thing. In contrast to autonomy, dignity has a lot of explanatory power. So if you if you study the philosophy of science in terms of rival theories and trying to figure out which theory is superior, it has to deal with explanatory power. So if you go, intrinsic dignity is the ground for the claim that we are all equal. So if we're going to say all of us are equal, you must embrace an account of intrinsic dignity. If you reject it, this is meaningless. There is no reason to believe we're all equal. And it's also important because it's, a, it's the ground for the claim that we are worth more than any other animal or plant. Now, why is this important? Because we can sell, buy animals and plants. We can't sell or buy you. But it's really interesting. And my students will, are a little confused about that now. They'll say, I'll say, would you be willing to sold for a million dollars that could be used to help your mother be cured of cancer? They want to be sold. Now, it's really interesting because we have several amendments in the Constitution to prevent that. But they say they can choose to give up their autonomy. See, you see how all of a sudden there's a lot of confusion in this ethics of autonomy. We're not really quite sure what the boundaries are. And so what actually happens, right? So for faith-based bioethics, this is the ethics of dignity. Dignity is the ground for autonomy. The reason why I have to respect you and respect your, your freedom is precisely because you are priceless. You see that the, the justification comes, dignity comes first, autonomy comes second, which is why dignity can limit and constrain autonomy because it is the basis for autonomy. And, and our culture has got a little confused right now because you've got, you're trying to get rid of dignity because it's hogwash but you're trying to keep the equality of all human beings, and you can't do that. And then you get confused. There's confusion in our culture today, and you can try to identify. People are trying to ju justify uh, intrinsic dignity, and they're struggling. So um, what I'm going to do now is just basically, uh, oops, yeah. So in terms of dignity concerns for human genome editing, so uh, if, if you are coming from a ethics of dignity, and I'm coming from an ethics of dignity because hopefully I've shown you that it's a superior account for ethics of dignity rather than ethics of autonomy, which I understand, you know, a lot of people use it, but I still believe men and women are equal. And I'm, I'm willing to die on that. And I want that to be in the world. And I can't go to China and argue for that equality if everything's autonomy. And if everything's autonomy as the West would like to have it, we've lost equality. And I'd rather have equality rather than autonomy because equality is at the basis for the autonomy. So there are dignity concerns for human genome editing and for the sake of time. So there are four basic concerns that are often raised. The safety of persons, the commodification of persons, the marginalization of persons, and just access. So these, if you are going to focus on dignity, then these are the four aspects of CRISPR-Cas that you need to think about. And uh, because we're running off on time, what I'm going to do is just focus on this. So um, this, this chart right here. So here's the proposed ethical landscape. So, um, so on the very top, I have somatic gene editing and germline gene editing. And on the horizontal, I have therapeutic and non-therapeutic. And these are the different, this is kind of like a um, matrix of responses. So I'm, first I'll argue, yes, as long as it's safe and effective, we should use gene editing to alleviate suffering, to cure disease, and to protect health and well-being. This is the goal of medicine. And medicine can use CRISPR-Cas in order to deal with somatic gene editing. Um, no, I'm gonna, so there are, there are different concerns raised by designer babies, okay? And, I, and there are, I can only highlight a few here. The most basic is that for any medical intervention, you need to have what is called a benefits risk analysis. So if you go in to get a procedure done over at, what's it called again, Hitchcock? Hitchcock. And they say, well, we're gonna give you, there's a surgery that you have to do. What they will tell you is they'll say, this is what can go right, and this what can go wrong. And they give you the benefits, and they give you the risks, and then only after you know the benefits and the risk, 
Can you give proper informed consent? In fact, if you don't know the risks, you can't give consent because you don't know if it's gonna hurt you or not. The challenge with this, this medical intervention is that you can't do the intervention, uh, you can't do the benefits risk analysis without actually making designer babies. Do you understand? Because I need designer babies to see what happens to them. But it's immoral. So we as a society agree that you can't do random experiments on people unless we know the benefits risk analysis already. And if you don't know that, basically you're doing experiments on people. And, and this is where uh, the challenges arose, for example, with the COVID-19 vaccines. So there were direct challenge trials done in the United Kingdom where they basically invited a whole bunch of young people and they said, can we like, give you COVID? Now, they could only do that because they, so I don't know if you know that, we, there was a, they had to do, they, they did that and, and that was incredibly important for us understanding how COVID works in the human body. We got a whole bunch of volunteers, they came in, uh, they were checked to make sure they were incredibly healthy and then we gave them COVID. And they stayed in the hospital for basically three weeks. And we took their blood every day. We looked at virus every day. It was direct challenge trial. Now, the only reason we could justify that is they agreed to it. Babies can't agree to anything. So doing experiment on babies, we agreed, especially after the Nuremberg trials, is unethical. You understand? So it would be unethical to do these experiments to, do, to get the benefits risk analysis. Now, it's interesting with this non-therapeutic. So I'm still thinking about this no maybe. So uh, somatic gene editing here, non-therapeutic. This is like, how about if we genetically improve your eyesight? Now, the reason why I have a maybe there is because people have made this interesting argument. What about someone who works for the tra air traffic control. And they actually, you know, this is their passion. They want to do this. Uh, and they ask us as a society to approve a gene editing for their eyes. It's non-therapeutic, but we want to improve their eyesight so they're better at their job for the common good. You understand? This is a common good. So this is why I'm like, mm, maybe, maybe. What I'm opposed to is like, all of a sudden the rich family goes and goes, I want my kid to go to Dartmouth. So I want him to be tall, beautiful, and handsome. So I'm gonna genetically engineer all of that, okay? So this is the non-therapeutic. And the idea here with non-therapeutic is, is to enhance opportunity rather than health. So if we're dealing with opportunities, that's the non-therapeutic side that I'd be concerned about. And again, with germline gene editing, I've, again, I've ruled that out precisely because um, we can't do the experiments that we would need to ethically justify any tinkering with kids. Now, this is not gonna stop anybody, unfortunately. We do not have the moral resources in the West anymore, uh, especially because so much of his autonomy, and so the idea is that if it doesn't hurt anybody, we should just do it. And so the idea here is, uh, let's just do it, okay? So anyway, so this is the concluding ethical guidelines. So, Somatic cell uh, modifications I've proposed to you can be morally justified in a way that medical interventions can be. I could be modified for therapeutic reasons, not sure about that yet. And then germline modification, non-therapeutic enhanced could never be justified. Well, thank you very much. I'm gonna end there at 7.30. If you have any questions, I'd be willing to answer a couple of them. Thank you. So, yeah, so clearly uh, you would have to make sure that the prime editing would not lead to frame shift mutations and anything that would change the sequence in a way that you don't intend it to be. But the idea here is that single strand cuts are easier to control than double strand cuts. And so the, ch the likelihood of a deleterious mutation is lower in the single rather than the double. Because what will happen is you only cut one and then the, the machine will actually peel back that and fill in with new. So there's another strand that is always intact. Thank you. That was a good question. Yep. Uh, 
Ah, ah. So, so for example, for example, with uh, with um, with sickle cell disease, what you do is you. It's not like you um, change the whole person. You provide alongside the disease cells healthy cells, and the healthy cells will replace the function of the unhealthy cells. That's one way of doing it. The other way is you actually can get rid of. So the idea is you get rid you take the stem cells out of the bone marrow, you fix them, and then you, you get rid of all the disease bone marrow and you replace them. So we do this right now for people with cancer. So stem cell, uh, hemopoietic stem cell transplants, uh, we can do that. So with regards to in vivo, where you're replacing like the, the liver, the idea here is that you don't have to replace the entire liver, you just have to replace enough of the liver so that th that part is able to do what the rest of the liver was not able to do. And that's what we're seeing with some of those diseases. Even 10% of the functioning liver is able to provide enough healthy function that 90%, the fact that 90% of the liver is still broken doesn't make any difference for the, for, for the patient. Ah, ah, that's, uh, so pancreas, so that's, a, the, the challenge with, with diabetes, especially um, uh, type one diabetes, the childhood one is it's an autoimmune disease. So even if you put in new cells, if you're not, we still don't quite get it, but the immune system kills the cells. So if you put the cells in, the new ones, they still get killed, right? So, and with type two diabetes, it's actually not cellular. It has to deal with, with the response of your body to insulin levels. So thank you, Jack. Uh, quick question, you mentioned in the West, there's people really value autonomy. Yep. Um, then I feel like there's a lot of people who still Yeah, so, so there's what's called an open future argument. So the argument, so there's an, uh, a secular argument, it's an autonomy argument, that one of the things that you value in your life is an open future. Now let's say Michael Jordan was, was uh, genetic, his kids were genetically engineered so that they would have the physical traits associated with being a basketball player. The challenge is that when that kid turns 14, what do you think everyone's gonna tell him he has to be? A basketball player. So his open future is severely restricted by the social expectations that are placed on him from the design. And so there are arguments that uh, you cannot be designed because the designing part impl implies a certain trajectory in life. And one of, one of the things that's important for the human being is this openness to the to one's future that allows you to choose. Now, uh, what's interesting is that, um, so I moved back to the Philippines and it's a very different mindset. And you can see the ethics of dignity and the ethics of autonomy in place. So here, when I was a professor at Providence College and I asked my students, what's your major gonna be? They're like, I have no clue. I'm so confused right now. I'm gonna take a bunch of courses. The ones that I don't flunk out of, all right, I'll figure out which one of those I enjoy. And then eventually I may stumble into my career choice. Now in the Philippines, it's very different. I asked my students, what do you want to do? They go, well, it really depends on what my family needs me to be. It's a very different account, right? The idea there in the Philippines, and not just the Philippines, but most of the world, is that we are, we, our identity is, cannot be extra, it, ca it cannot be simply isolated from the circumstances of our life. That, that the circumstances of our family in terms of the responsibilities and obligations, especially if you're like the oldest son, especially if you're the smartest kid. So in Asia, what will happen, and we see this many times, is that uh, the poor will have large numbers of children because each of the children is a lottery ticket. And each of these children is a lottery ticket to a better life because one of them could be smart enough to go to college. And if that kid goes to college, he will, end, he will get a job and his job will now allow him to lift the rest of his family out of poverty. So now what ends up happening, you see, is that you, if you happen to be that smart kid, you don't have the open future that American kids simply assume they have. You know, if I wanted to be a piano player, that'd be great. No. 
your family's entire livelihood is based upon you getting a job that can pay enough to elevate the family out of poverty. And so you can see how this, uh, and it's only going back to the Philippines where you discover that this, most of the world does not share this obsession with freedom. This obs not just freedom, but it's, it's an autonomous freedom that is divorced from any obligations, responsibilities, and duties that you could, that are simply yours by the very fact that you belong to this family or that community or that whatever it is. Uh, here, the view is you're, you know, you're isolated, an island in the middle of the Pacific. You get to decide everything you want to do. And I'm discovering that, no, that's not the case. And unfortunately, as I've tried to illustrate to you, an ethics of autonomy is making it very difficult for us to justify the health, the universal human rights that we need to justify to many of these countries that are oppressing their people uh, because it's not autonomy. It can't just be autonomy. It would be stuck. Okay. Yep. Um, kind of reminds me of Mr. Mosley's hierarchy of needs. Yes. Well, I think you have to be wealthy enough to be free. I've discovered that that. You have to become wealthy enough to be free. It is a luxury of wealth that you are free because the poor do not have that privilege of being free. They're constrained by their poverty uh, in order to achieve what they can achieve given what they have. So to, that's why it's very interesting we make arguments based on freedom, assuming that freedom is something that is accessible to all. Uh, it's a privilege of the rich. Uh, you know, and this is something where I, I come back to the US, I've spent 30 years of my life here. It's interesting, you know, we talk about equity, we talk about the, the, the disparities, and they are real between uh, people of color and the majority of whites. But now that I come back, I've discovered the largest disparity is whether or not you're American or you're not. The gap between a black American and a white American is mini compared to being an American and being, say, a Ugandan or even a Filipino. You know what I mean? The, the gap, the gap is huge. And so what's striking is we so focus on the small gap that we forget this incredibly huge gap. Uh, it's kind of narrow because, and hopefully we can see ourselves in the context of the planet, you know, and to, to better realize uh, the great privilege we have simply because we're in America. Uh, we forget that sometimes. I think uh, I, I've only appreciated returning back to this country after even a five month uh, being away. <laughs> yes. In the American legal system, there's the idea that parents can consent for their children. Um, is it, would you say that that doesn't convince you that germline editing, even though therapeutic, could be tested to the risk of performing an experiment like that would be too, too great? Or would it be a case for that? Well, so, so yes, we, we agree that, uh, that parents can, can consent for their kids. Like, you know, parents can tell you, you got to go to this elementary school, not that one. But even for experimentation, uh, we are very... Even today, just live with your living kids, it's very hard for parents to consent uh, with experiments. Now, the, the idea here is the parents are made aware of the benefits and the risks for their kids. And any reasonable parent, uh, so the idea is that the, the benefits and risks are presented to a reasonable parent, a reasonable parent, a parent who would be able to see that the benefits outweigh the risk can justify that. So, for example, a kid has to have a bone marrow transplant because he has acute lymphocytic leukemia, the parents give, give consent. But my argument here is the parents can't even give consent because they don't have the information they need to give consent. They don't have the benefits and risk data. So they're just saying, do whatever you want. We won't say that, you, you, we, we would not allow parents to do that, right? We assume parents will be informed enough that they can give informed consent. Uh, we will not say parents can just do anything willy-nilly with their kids. We certainly wouldn't say, well, we can just start, you know, if my parents, if parents are like, all right, let's just start injecting all sorts of vaccines into my, ba in my baby. We'd be like, whoa, 
Uh, just because you're parents, you can't do that to your kid. So society is still protecting uh, the children from what is called unreasonable experimentation. Uh, if you have no data to decide whether or not this is beneficial, if the risks or the benefits outweigh one or the other, then it's unreasonable to expect parents to, just to, to do that. And we go, why would parents who love their kids, who are called to love their kids, expose their kids to unnecessary risk? I mean, we already, we say that. We say we can't, if you love someone, you don't expose them to unnecessary risk. If you don't even know the risk, and in fact, we know from animal studies that the risks are somewhat are real. Uh, you know, parents who try to do that would be suspect. You see, so it's a little tricky. It's they can give consent, but they still need information to give consent, and they don't have that information. Well, thank you very much. Oh, one more question. Yeah. Um, what are some of the like, negative effects of CRISPR? So, for example, some, it has a cancer. So what happens is that uh, the early, so like CRISPR 1.0 the early versions, they have what are called off-target mutations. So you send them here, but the targeting, it's just like a missile, right? Occasionally the missile will like go awry and blow up a civilian house and you're in trouble. So here the idea is that the CRISPR mutation, like you've got billions of cells. So if 99.99% of the cells are corrected in the proper way, but if one cell is miscorrected and the mutation is placed elsewhere, the chance that that aberrant mutation will now trigger cancer is actually quite high. And so the risk of cancer becomes higher, right? We haven't quantified that um, because that kind of study is still hard to do. But without that kind of information, we, we, this is why that Chinese scientist, He Zhang Kui, was in big doo-doo because we, he was doing this without knowing any of that. Well, thank you very much. I'll, have any, I'll answer questions afterwards. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.